Today I'll, I'll be discussing the theology of John Calvin, and I must say to start that it's a little ironic that the topic or the title of the topic that I'm going to be discussing is the theology of John Calvin because you may notice as I speak on the subject that there isn't much of the theology uh, that we get from Calvin that is distinctly John Calvin's. If you remember last week, I began my teaching by mentioning that you may be surprised to know that John Calvin's theology isn't as Calvinistic as you may have expected. Now, I wasn't trying to be controversial in any way, nor was I trying to imply that Calvin's theology was inconsistent with Scripture. On the contrary, I think Calvin is very biblical. But what I mean to say when I say that Calvin's theology isn't as Calvinistic as you may have expected is that Calvin was not formulating his theology all by himself. Calvin's theology is a development from many contributors. In other words, when you read John Calvin's position, they are not distinctly Calvin's. Calvin is a product of his time and a student of many who came before him as well as others who came alongside him. And this is not to say that Calvin wasn't his own man. However, it's important to recognize that Calvin was not in his study reinventing the wheel. For example, if you remember from my last lecture on Calvin's life, there was a period of time when Calvin, after beginning his ministry in Geneva, was forced to flee from Geneva. And one of the places that he fled to was Strasbourg, Germany. And in Strasbourg, he met up with the reformer Martin Bucer. Who is Martin Bucer? Martin Bucer was a Dominican monk who was drawn to the ideas that were promoted by Martin Luther during the time of the Reformation. And before Calvin even came into the scene in 1521, Bucer had already left the Dominican order and became reformed and even became a leader in the Reformation in Strasbourg where he was noted for his efforts to promote tolerance and understanding between different groups which were breaking away from Roman Catholicism. You may also remember from my class on Martin Luther, when Luther and Zwingli at some point came together uh, to discuss the Lord's Supper. Y'all remember that? It was actually Martin Bucer who called this meeting together and tried to mediate between Luther and Zwingli and hoped to bring some unity. So we see that Bucer was a reformer known to be one who sought after church unity, even in his pursuit of reforming the church. So he, he wasn't in favor of causing these breakups. He really fought for unity, even in his uh, pursuit to reform the church. Now, here's an important note. Most historians would credit Bootser for being the one that shaped Calvin's theology and made him what he was and what he is today in relation to the Reformed tradition. Um, Bruce Gordon states in his uh, biography of, of uh, John Calvin, he states this. He says, Martin Bootser, in his relentless pursuit of unity, became Calvin's model churchman and the greatest influence in his formation as a minister and teacher. So, uh, you know, what we see in John Calvin, a lot of that is coming from his influence from Martin Bucer. Bucer is often considered a forgotten reformer. 
but a lot of but a lot is owed to Bootser for Calvin's theology. What kind of mentor was Bootser to Calvin? Uh, Bruce Gordon, again in his book, he says, Bootser put himself out for Calvin in every respect. He provided accommodation in his home. He introduced him to his circle of friends and finally found a house with a shared garden where they might easily meet and, and converse. And so there was this, this uh, uh, discipleship that was done in a very organic form between Bootser and Calvin. In fact, uh, it was while Calvin was with Bootser that he found a wife and got married. And so there was this life-on-life -life, uh, discipleship between Bootser and Calvin. Uh, and again, during, the, during this period, much of Calvin's theology was de developed. There was a kind of maturing in Calvin's life and his theology. Now, prior to meeting Bootser, he was influenced by William Farrell, who was like a fiery kind of guy, um, got, got uh, Calvin into a lot of controversy, which obviously led them to being kicked out of Geneva. But Bootser sort of trained him uh, in a different way. Uh, to be a reformer that was patient and kind and was seeking out for unity uh, at all costs without, of course, um, sacrificing uh, sound theology. It's, it's not at the expense of, of truth. Um, <clears throat> And even though Bootser is described as a person of tolerance and Christian unity, we have to be careful not to conclude that Bootser was a passive man or even a person that would have been hesitant to speak the truth. Uh, in fact, on the contrary, it was said by another biographer of Calvin that at one point, a prideful Calvin was found opposing Bootser on an issue. And Bootser replies in a letter, and he replies back sternly, uh, and after reading Bootser's reply in the letter, Calvin was shut down and hum humiliated by his arrogance and pride. And he could not sleep and was agitated for three days. And so, you know, you push Bootser a little bit, he's going to be stern with you. Um, <clears throat> Bootser stood for truth. Uh, but he also understood the importance of unity and charity. And so uh, Calvin is getting a lot of that influence from, from Bootser. Now, why is it important that I mention Bootser when I'm talking about Calvin's theology. It's important because while Calvin was with Bootser during his exile from Geneva, we see Calvin releasing his first revised version of the Institutes. This is uh, his magnum opus, right? Uh, when you think of John Calvin, you think of his, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, his famous work. Well, it was during the time that he was with Bootser that he uh, he released his revised version, uh, which was in 1539. And in that version, we see an increase of doctrines being addressed, um, especially in comparison to his first edition. When Calvin first created the Institutes, there were only like six doctrines that he was addressing. But when he, in his time with Bootser, you can see that he was influenced theologically and the Institutes just increased. There were more things added to it. We also see during this time that Calvin releases what is known as one of his most theological, or important theological works, rather, which uh, was his Romans Commentary of 1540. Martin Luther 
uh, was known for his Galatians commentary, but John Calvin <clears throat> was known for his Romans commentary. Uh, in this commentary, Calvin was at his best exegetically. And this was the time that Calvin had his most free time. Uh, he had more of a focus because he was away uh, from Geneva. And so uh, if you ever read Romans before, it contains passages that touch on theological topics that are very much still debated today. And so this is to say that, um, you know, Calvin's commentary on Romans might be worth reading. Also, while in Strasbourg, Calvin releases his translation of the sermons of John Chrysostom in French. He translates it and he releases it. Chrysostom was an important early church father. He is known for his excellent preaching and speaking abilities uh, and was actually considered one of the most prolific authors in the early church. And so Calvin uh, reads the fathers and he releases uh, a French translation of his sermons. By the way, I think it's important to add something about John Calvin that is unique and probably one of his most important contributions to Reformed theology uh, and even to Protestant or the Protestant world period. And it's this, that John Calvin was a master and a deep reader and a lover of the patristic age. He loved reading, studying the church fathers. Calvin was not one of these Protestants that thought that everything after the book of Acts that was produced by the church was not to be considered. He, he wasn't that kind of Protestant that says, oh, we don't have to go back and read some of the early fathers. Um, Calvin understood that the witness of the church fathers was to be our witness also, that the heritage of the early church fathers was also our heritage as well. Oftentimes we dismiss this because because of our overcommitment to maybe one or two of our favorite popular preachers of the day, we assume that the only theological line we should claim as our heritage is one that stems from one man whom we should agree, at, whom we should agree with at every point. And this is something that we have to be careful of, especially today. On the contrary, Calvin was a student of the patristics. He was Catholic in the small c, use of the term. His heritage and our heritage can be traced from today through the Reformation, through the medieval period, and through the patristic age all the way back to the apostles. He rightly understood that God would preserve his church throughout history, and his word would be preserved throughout all ages by gifting the church with men who would rightly interpret scripture and formulate the doctrines that we would consider to be essential. Calvin was not a separatist. He, along with the other reformers, did not want to be considered as starters of a new religion or a new kind of Christianity. That's not what he uh, wanted to be considered as. And this is something that you will notice even in our reformed confessions today. If you were to pick up the Westminster Confession, chapter 25, um, it says this. It says, uh, when it talks about the church, it says, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, that have been 
are or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And, and our confession says the same thing, same exact words. In other words, uh, Calvin knew that the church was not only in his, for, back of letter, for lack of better terms, uh, in his denomination. In other words, the only people that we're going to see in heaven are not Baptists. <laughs> Calvin knew that there were true saints in other traditions that may be in uh, bad traditions or traditions that are not, when you consider all of their doctrine, are not uh, all in line with the Protestant understanding of Scripture. But he did believe that the true church um, can be traced through sound doctrine regardless of, of the tradition. Now keep in mind that Calvin believed that the distinctly Catholic or distinctly Roman Catholic doctrines were false. He was opposed to the distinctly Roman Catholic doctrines. He even went as far as believing that the Pope was the Antichrist. And you can see this in Book 4 of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. So when I say that Calvin was Catholic, I don't mean that Calvin was Roman Catholic. I mean that Calvin identified with the true Protestant beliefs even if they were found in the writings of men from the past that he didn't agree with completely. Uh, and, and we even see this um, with how Calvin viewed Luther. Calvin was greatly inspired by Luther, and yet he didn't agree with everything Luther taught. In fact, Calvin knew that Luther would have probably been suspicious of Calvin's views. He probably would have called him a heretic. Yet Calvin says... Even if Luther were to call me a devil, I would still regard him as an outstanding servant of God. And this is something that uh, Calvin understood, and I think, I think we can be better at understanding. All this to say that Calvin's theology is not distinctly Calvin's theology, which is a good thing. And this brings up the question of whether or not the use of the term Calvinism or Calvinist is helpful. Again, I'm not against the term Calvinism or Calvinist. However, I'm not so sure if it's 100% accurate. And according to how the term is used today, we have reduced all of Calvin's theology to the so-called five points of Calvinism, also known as the tulip, or even the doctrine of predestination. When we think about Calvinism, all we think of is predestination. And this is, this is wrong. And as important as these doctrines are, Calvin's theology is much more broader than the tulip, or much more broader than predestination. Uh, and, and being that the majority of the churches today in the States are predominantly semi-Pelagian or Arminian, this doctrine of predestination stands out. And this is probably why oftentimes we think of Calvin and his theology, the first thing we think of is predestination. And we want to let everyone know that you're either elect or not elect. And we want to start that kind of controversy. Uh, and don't get me wrong, predestination is a glorious doctrine. However, this was not the central focus of Calvin's theology. In fact, if I were to state what the orientation of Calvin's theology is, I would say that his theology was not so much predestinarian, 
but rather Christocentric. Calvin's theology was Christocentric. Now, Calvinists today are obsessed with predestination or the controversial limited atonement. <laughs> and today's Calvinists have lost the, uh, the, the focus of Calvin, which was uh, Christocentricity. Now, considering that many great reformers, considering the, great, the many great reformers that have existed, Calvin actually had a theology that was very balanced. So that's why he stands out. You know, there, there were a lot of good theologians during the Reformation, but Calvin stands out because his theology as a system was very well balanced, which is why his system of theology stood out more than others, and it's Christocentrism is what tied all those doctrines together. So, you know, oftentimes we misread Calvin by overemphasizing one doctrine because we like it so much, because it's more controversial. But Calvin's theology overall was very, very balanced. Uh, if you want a, a good, a good uh, person to read, it's Richard Muller. He talks a lot about, about that um, and, and how to understand Calvin and the Reformed tradition um, moving on, I want to talk about some key doctrines that were held by Calvin. There are many doctrines, but I've only selected a few, um, and you can read all his other stuff. I mean, if you, if you go and read his institutes, um, which I think is worth buying and reading. But with that said, I, cho I chose two doctrines that I feel haven't been covered as much in our series. Um, you've probably heard already of Calvin's view of salvation, um, not to minimize it in any way, but I think, I think we're probably more familiar with his understanding of justification. Um, I think as a Reformed church, I think we understand predestination, right? Raise your hand. If not, we can talk about it later. <laughs> so I decided not to cover those things. I think you've probably heard that enough. Uh, I've chosen uh, doctrines that that you may not be familiar with as far as Calvin's view on it. Um, I chose Calvin's view on worship and also Calvin's view on the sacraments, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we'll talk about Calvin's view on those things, um, which I think will be the best use of the time. Uh, beginning with worship, you can best see his views displayed when Calvin returns to Geneva after spending time in Strasbourg with with Martin Bucer. Immediately, you see the influence of Luther and Bucer in Calvin's view of the way uh, Calvin had his worship service ordered. Uh, there was a lot of influence, influence from Luther and Bucer. Uh, and the way that Calvin formulated his liturgy, his order of worship, the way that the church was going to worship, it was almost opposite of what you see in the Catholic Mass. While the Roman Catholic service was mostly done in the language not common to people, Calvin emphasized the importance of the service to be understood by the laity. Um, and and this, was, this was really key to Reformed worship, that everyone understood. There was clarity from the pulpit, from the singing, from you know, just every aspect of it. The, the lay people understood. Uh, for the most part, it was... It was made to, to be understood. 
other guiding principles were that this service should be participatory. And that's very different from the Roman Catholic uh, Mass. Uh, there was a part of the worship that everyone participated in. Doesn't mean that everyone was preaching or everyone was doing those kind of things. Uh, those offices and those jobs were uh, reserved for ordained ministers. But there was a participation from, from the congregation. As the Catholic Mass performed its rituals, and most people just watched, Calvin emphasized the priesthood of all believers. This was a doctrine that he, he pushed, that's something that Luther pushed, which was that everyone was a priesthood. Everyone uh, had access to God through Christ. Um, you didn't have to go through the mediation of a priest. There was and always is uh, access and participation from the lay people um, directly to God. And Calvin emphasized that, uh, the, this uh, priesthood of all believers. And he did so by assuring that the worship service was not to be a performance from the front, but a participation by all of God's people. In, in 1542, uh, Calvin's church publishes a book of church order entitled The Manner of Praying in the French Churches <clears throat> and the songbook entitled the French Psalms and Canticles. They, they have this set of writings that were used to, to, um, to clarify the way the church service should be ordered. Uh, it's funny because the subtitle of it ran really long. This is the subtitle. It said, the form of ecclesiastical prayers and hymns with a manner of administrating the sacraments and celebrating marriage according to the custom of the ancient church. It was a super long title. Um, but it was clear. Like, no one could read that and be like, I, I don't know what this church is about. Um, it was very clear. <clears throat> now, I know a lot of this stuff is foreign to us, um, but it's important not to, not to disregard so quickly the use of these kinds of documents. <clears throat> Considering the need for a clear understanding of how the church is to be ordered, especially since this is a, a break away from the Roman Catholic Church, these documents actually served the church in Geneva in a way that kept order for the sake of remaining biblical in their worship and in their polity. And so, you know, th this was valuable. <clears throat> Moving on, you can see that there were Four essential elements of worship for Bootser and also for Calvin. And it was based on their study of Acts 2.42. They identified these elements as apostolic patterns in the New Testament, which were the, the word or the necessity of having the word preached, um, and that as a ministry that's central to the worship. Prayer, the meal, which would be the, the supper, the Lord's Supper, and alms or, or offerings. Those were uh, essential elements that they saw as being apostolic patterns of, of, of what worship has to at least consist of. <clears throat> Further along, Calvin emphasized the biblical, the biblical command that we ought to speak.
speak to one another in psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see this in Ephesians 5, 19. Uh, and this was, this, were, this was to be considered part of the worship uh, in which he saw was a pattern of the early church as well and even the patristics. So um, even though Bootser and maybe Luther, uh, not so much Luther, he was, he was really uh, into music, but you know, some of the reformers would not see singing <clears throat> as even essential to the worship. Lu uh, Calvin thought the opposite. Calvin said that he sees it in scripture as being part of uh, an essential element of worship. <clears throat> now, with, with those foundations, let me describe, uh, just to give you an example, let me describe the order of worship in an ordinary Sunday morning service. The minister would begin with a call to worship uh, straight from a passage of scripture. Uh, then the minister moves into a corporate confession of sin. And this is done as the minister reads of the law of God and confesses with the entire congregation unto God. Uh, and they would confess together that they have broken God's commandment. This is how they began their worship service. They began by confessing their sin before God. And afterward, the minister pronounces gospel forgiveness to the congregation with the following words. Uh, he would say something like this. He would say, to those, to those who in this way repent and seek Jesus Christ for their salvation, I pronounce absolution or I pronounce forgiveness in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so you see, you see this uh, corporate confession of sin, uh, beginning worship, uh, in identifying with the fact that they are sinners and they're approaching a holy God in worship. And they, they start right off the bat with the fact that they're sinners. Um, they do so in response to a reading of the law of God. And then afterwards, the minister would uh, pronounce the gospel to them uh, as sort of a, a way of showing that you don't remain in condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so he pronounces this um, promise of the gospel. Then afterward, <clears throat> uh, what comes after follows a corporate singing of the first four commandments. So they would sing the commandments, the, four command, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. Then the minister would pray, asking the Lord that these laws may be written in our hearts so that we may seek only to serve and obey thee. They would say this, or the minister would say this, unto the congregation. Then the rest of the commandments were sung as the minister entered the pulpit. He would then preface his sermon with a prayer that led into the Lord's Prayer. Then before the sermon began, the congregation would sing a psalm. Then the minister would pray, and at that moment, he would begin to exposit the Word of God. And that was a big emphasis on John Calvin, that when he went up there, uh, he, he, he did not feel... Uh, that it was necessary for him to share his personal experiences, his thoughts, his job was to go up there and, you know, where he left off last, last Sunday, he was going to continue on the very next verse 
and, and expound the verses and give the meaning of what God intended in that passage. And this was uh, his theology because he knew that um, what needs to be given to the congregation in order for them to be fed by God and to be regulated by God is God's word and not his own. And so this was a big, uh, a big emphasis that Calvin brought to um, Reformed Orthodoxy, that, that we, you know, who, whoever is it, uh, preaching, whoever is bringing the word, that they're bringing what the point of the scripture is to the people. So expository preaching was, was the only way of preaching for John Calvin. After the sermon, the minister would then pray again. But this time he would pray for the rulers and pastors, the church in general. He would pray for salvation of all men. He would pray for the persecuted. And after a final psalm sing, he would close with an ironic blessing or a benediction, uh, which you get this concept from Numbers 6, 22, around there so. Um, a lot of this is very similar to what we do here. Um, you see that structure that, uh, uh, you know, where the word is what uh, determines how the order of worship is going to be, going to be set. It was very word-centered. And for Calvin and even Bootser, it was evident that the key principle of biblical worship was that the worship ought to be regulated by the word of God. They wanted to pull away from man's inventions, man's ideas, which he saw to be what the Roman Catholic Church was doing. They were taking liberty. They were going beyond what Scripture said. And so this was a, a key principle that Calvin uh, contributed to. Moving on, uh, let's talk about the sacraments. Uh, beginning with baptism. What was John Calvin's view of baptism? John Calvin believed, let me get a sip of this real quick. John Calvin believed in what we would call pedo baptism. This is the belief that infants are to be baptized. This rests on Calvin's understanding of the nature of the church and the covenant in which the church has with God. It is his belief that Christian parents who bear a child brings a child into covenant with God by baptizing them into church membership. And so a child is a church member once they're baptized. It is his belief that Christian parents uh, and their faith are sufficient to, um, to qualify the child as a member of the church uh, once the child is baptized. It is also important to note that Calvin also defends, and not all people who hold to a Pado baptist position would, uh, would agree with this, what I'm about to say, but a lot of them do too as well. Uh, and it's the fact that Calvin defends the possibility that an infant can possess saving faith if the Lord feels like he wants to grant it. And so, you know, he would view... Um, that the possibility that a child could have faith um, if God felt like granting it. And uh, that we should assume, and Calvin would say that we should assume with charity that our child 
has faith until proven otherwise. Now, as Reformed Baptists, we would see the nature of the church different, uh, the nature of the covenant different, uh, and therefore we would reject infant baptism and we would hold to baptism uh, upon profession of faith. When the, when the person would profess faith, then we baptize. Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion on infant versus uh, believer's baptism, but I do want to focus on Calvin's view of the efficacy of baptism or what baptism does. <clears throat> Calvin viewed baptism as, baptism as a means of grace. Uh, it wasn't merely just a symbol. He viewed it as a means of grace, and I'll explain what that is. For Calvin, baptism was a symbol or a sign, but it was a symbol or sign that pointed to a reality of death and resurrection that is experienced when you're actually born again. Okay, so, you know, if, if the child is not born again when they baptize him, Calvin would still see that this sign is given to the child. Okay? Uh, and again, even though the child who gets baptized may not be regenerated at the time of baptism, Calvin believed that the baptism would eventually serve the child when in fact he eventually becomes regenerate. And so it's in a sense a kind of down payment, um, but not really. It was, it was a, a sign that was placed on the child and when he actually does become regenerate, the sign and the reality of the sign come together and become one real thing in time and space. Uh, again, it would serve as a symbol of a promise and then longing for a fulfillment. That, that was the relationship between the sign and the child actually being born again. The grace which the baptism signified at their baptism is then finally fulfilled upon them when they become born again. So, in the final analysis, either the symbol of their baptism comes to reality in their regeneration, or the symbol becomes a sign of their condemnation if they eventually reject the gospel and never become regenerate. So, they would place a sign on the child. He is counted as a Christian. If he doesn't become born again at some point, then this sign is a testimony against him. Uh, he's considered a, a, a child who ran from the faith, who, who left the faith. Um, if the symbol is given to him and the child actually does come to faith, then the symbol finds its fulfillment in the reality, and it's a sign of blessing. Calvin also saw that for those who are in faith, if you've already been baptized as a paedo-baptist, those who are already in faith, baptism isn't only a means of grace at the moment, but serves as a means of grace as they continue growing in their sanctification and they look back to their baptism at, and strive to improve their baptism through their sanctification. And so, just to be a little bit more clear, in other words, um, a child who is born, I'm sorry, a child who is born and is baptized and later on in his life um, walks as a Christian is able to look back at his baptism 
And this baptism serves as a means of grace, an encouragement to his soul. The Spirit pours into his soul um, blessing and transformation and uh, sanctification as he looks back and sees that as a witness to the reality of his regeneration. By faith, Calvin would say, we would look back at our baptism and be encouraged. As Calvin says, he says, the great truth, for example, of our spiritual regeneration, though but once represented to us in baptism, should remain fixed in our minds throughout our whole life. In other words, for Calvin... Baptism is an ongoing means of grace for the elect. Each time a true believer looks back at his baptism by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit communicates grace signified by that sacrament or that sign. And as wonderful as these truths are, to be quite honest with you, it seems to work more consistently for Baptists who hold to believers' baptism. Because if you think about it, it would be very hard for a paedo-baptist to look back to their baptism as a means of grace, since they probably won't remember it. They were infants, uh, and so this is why I'm Baptist. Tears, <laughs> tears. Amen. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, moving on, one of the key topics during the early years of the Reformation was this big topic of the Lord's Supper. Uh, in 1529, Luther and Zwingli split over the issue of the Lord's Supper. In spite of Luther's breaking with the Roman interpretation of the Mass, remember Luther broke from that as well. Luther did not agree with the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, which, would, which they would state that the bread and the wine actually became in substance, in some metaphysical way, became the actual uh, blood and the body of Christ. Luther pulled away from that slightly. Um, Luther held a view of the bread and the wine uh, in, in this way. He would view it that Christ was actually miraculously and really present in and under the elements. Um, he wouldn't say that they became the bread and the wine, I mean the, the, the blood and the flesh, but he would say that they were there and they were in there and under there. And so he would still believe, this is Luther, he would still believe that when you partake, you're consuming it. You're doing it through your mouth and you're consuming the body of Christ. And then remember, Zwingli didn't agree with that. Zwingli viewed the Lord's Supper as nothing more than a sign or a symbol to edify us, to, to remember Christ and, and his covenant. In no way was Jesus physically present. This was Zwingli's view. It was simply a memorial. Question, who do you think Calvin sided with? It's a trick question, so. Neither. Right, <laughs> right. Neither, right. Uh, I mean, to be fair, in a sense, Calvin 
Yeah, he sided with neither, but in a sense he sided with some aspects. And I'll, I'll tell you what they were. Um, give me a second. Calvin agreed that it was a memorial, right? Calvin agreed that it was a memorial, but not merely a memorial. It, it, it wasn't like, you know, when someone dies and you give a toast. It wasn't just the memory, like, you know, in memory of our Lord, right? It wasn't just the memory. And again, this is where Calvin was a bit more like Luther there. Calvin accepted that Christ was in fact present at the Lord's Supper, but not in the same way as Luther. What Luther interpreted as a physical presence, Calvin saw as a spiritual presence. Calvin believed that when, he, when, the, when the body comes together in communion, right, we're in one spirit. We, uh, right before we take the supper, we, we stop and we think, you know, where are we? How are we in the faith? Are we reconciled with our brothers? And when we are, we take it in sweet communion to each other. And Calvin knew that in that moment when you partake, Christ was there with his people. Um, so Calvin saw that there was a spiritual presence. Calvin repeatedly stated that his argument with Roman Catholics and Luther was not over the fact of Christ's presence. He didn't agree that, he, he, he wasn't arguing that Christ wasn't there. That's why he sort of didn't even side with Zwingli at all. He agreed that Christ was there, but it was more an argument about the mode. How was he there? And according to Calvin, Christ's human body is locally present in heaven, right? He can't be, his physical body can't be here in the bread and the wine. And then also in Mexico with other people taking the Lord's Supper at the same time. And also in New Jersey. Um, he, he is there in heaven. He is there in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So he, his, his physical body cannot be present in, in, the, in the Lord's Supper. So according to Calvin, Christ's human body is locally present in heaven, but it does not have to descend in order for believers to truly partake of it because the Holy Spirit affects communion. The Holy Spirit is the bond of the believer's union with Christ. Therefore, that which the minister does on an earthly level, the Holy Spirit does spiritually. In other words, those who partook of the bread and wine in faith are also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being nourished by the body and blood of Christ. This, of course, raises a second question regarding the mode by which believers partake of the body and blood of Christ. And Zwingli argued that to eat and to drink the body of the blood of Christ is simply a synonym of believing in Christ. You do it, and this is a sign of believing. Calvin differed. Calvin would say that the eating of the body of Christ is not equivalent to faith. Instead, it's a result of faith. And Calvin often used the term spiritual eating to describe the mode in which we, are to, we ought to partake in the supper. Um, but he's, he's, he's careful to define what he means. He said repeatedly that spiritual eating does not mean that believers partake only of Christ's spirit. Spiritual eating means, according to Calvin, that by faith believers partake of the body and the blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who pours the life of Christ into them. In other words... <clears throat> When we do it, the real spiritual eating is that of uh, faith, 
right? It's, it's we, 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 even though we're physically eating, it's a preaching to the senses, but the real spiritual, the real eating of Christ is uh, an act of faith. Calvin also rejected the idea that we partake of the body and blood of Christ with the mouth. Not only Rome, but Luther and his followers asserted that the doctrine of oral uh, mendication, which is oral eating, um, was that the way that we receive grace is in some sort of physical way as we put the elements in our mouth. According to the Lutherans, the body of Christ is orally eaten, but it is a supernatural eating rather than a natural physical eating. So something happens supernaturally as they put it in their mouth. Both believers and unbelievers receive the body of Christ according to Lutherans, although unbelievers receive it to their own judgment. Uh, Calvin believed that when an unbeliever or a believer partakes of the Lord's Supper, only the believers are blessed. Only the believers are being fed spiritually. Uh, the Calvin and I mean uh, the Roman Catholic Church and Lutheran theology believed that even if you were unregenerate and you partook of the Lord's Supper, you get grace apart from being born again. And that's not true. The blessing of the Lord's Supper is experienced only by those who um, were Christians. Only by those who were Christians. Sanctifying grace is poured into the soul of the believer when taken in faith. According to Calvin, the Lord's Supper is also a bond of love intended to produce mutual love among believers. It is meant to inspire thanksgiving and gratitude towards one another. Hence the term communion. That's where we get the term communion. And because it is at the very heart of Christian worship, Calvin argued that it should be observed whenever the word is preached. And so you'll notice that we observe it every week here. Calvin thought that was a good idea. Although in practice, Calvin was not able to do so. I think he, he was only able to do it, I think, once a month or something like that. Um, but Calvin believed that it should, it should be observed at least once a week. Um, Calvin believed that the Lord's Supper should be rid of any superstition and it should be observed in its biblical simplicity. Calvin considered the Lord's Supper to be a divine gift given by Christ himself to his people to nourish and strengthen their faith. For this reason, it is not to be neglected, but rather celebrated often, and, and it should be done so with joy. Um, for a long time, many of us come from you know, all different kinds of church backgrounds, but I just remember not knowing why I was taking the Lord's Supper. I really just said, well, this is what we have to do because Christ said it. And praise God, we should obey no matter what. But it was insignificant. It meant nothing. It was just like, take it because this is what we ought to do. But as you study uh, Calvin's theology, you see the significance of it. Um, and, I mean, if you study it in Scripture, you can see the significance of it. Uh, it is, it's definitely more than a more than a memory, more than a toast. <clears throat> In conclusion, John Calvin is known for being one of the clearest thinkers and developers of a theology that is faithful to God's word. From his understanding of the gospel, 
all the way to his view of worship and the sacraments. The orientation of his theology was Christocentric. Um, and it is just important for us to remember that if we are to take in consideration Calvin's theology, we have to resist the temptation of reducing Calvin's theology to just a tulip or doctrines of predestination. It's more than that. But that if we take in the truths of the doctrines of grace, that it would not only stop at the doctrine of salvation, but that it may also inform other areas in the Christian faith. It's a body of work. It's a, it's a, a system of theology that I think is, is faithful to Scripture. So, in conclusion, let us thank God for men like John Calvin, whom the Lord used mightily in ridding us from false worship and bringing us to sound doctrine. And in the end, the goal for us should be the same as it was for Calvin, which is to continue to be reformed in conformity to the Word of God. That's the goal. And, uh, of course, until, until Christ returns. Uh, that concludes uh, the class for today on John Calvin's theology. Next week, Lord willing, uh, Pastor Ron will be covering William Tyndale. Um, let's pray. Our God, we thank you once again for what you have done through the life and theology of John Calvin. Lord, we thank you that you have given us gifts. You have given gifts to the church throughout history. Lord, and we often take for granted the rich heritage of truth that we have received from those who labored before us. And we thank you and we ask that we would be more grateful uh, for that. Once again, we, we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.